Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23 today. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 23. Let's go ahead uh, and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in the sufficiency of your word. We rejoice in the sufficiency of Christ. I thank you for the fact that you are continually kind to us and patient. We ask that you might continue to do so. Lead us to repentance and faith for those who do not know Christ. And for those of us who do, may we continually uh, repent and exercise faith in you. We pray that you might help us in those things. We pray that you'd help us to submit ourselves to the authority of your word today. In Christ's name, amen. One of the uh, buzzwords today among missionaries is, uh, and specifically the last several years, is the, uh, the buzzword or the, or the word contextualization. Uh, contextualization is a word that is used, it's a principle that when you go and take the gospel into a different culture, you remove uh, your uh, idiosyncrasies in order to help um, people not trip over those things and, and to help the gospel to be clear. One writer explains this about missions work in Asia. He says, as a free American, I have a right to do a lot of things that would be offensive in my new cultural context. Wear my shoes indoors, put up a fence around my own yard without my local community leader's permission, or even leave a Central Asian birthday party before the rice is served. And yet, when we look at some of these things that are not moral issues, we see that there are uh, things that we can give up. And we talked about that this morning at 9 o'clock. In fact, this is... Um, uh, providential that the Lord would uh, allow us to have that conversation that we did at nine combined with this passage where we are talking about how is it that we can minister to someone, uh, a family who may even be coming here to our own community, how can we minister to them knowing that our cultures are worlds apart? What are some of the things that we could say, I can give this up so that uh, they can clearly hear the gospel message from me? And that really is what the word contextualization means. The Apostle Paul uses contextualization when he preaches at Mars Hill, and he quotes philosophers that they would have recognized, as even some of your own poets have said, this and this and this. Missionaries practice contextualization when they change their habits and customs in order to better reach the people they are called to serve. Last week, I gave an example of contextualization um, with uh, Mormons, and one church that I know of has said in, in Utah, we're not going to serve coffee because Mormons don't drink coffee, and so we don't want to cause a barrier or a stumbling block when they come into our church to visit. Uh, we want to be able to share the gospel clearly with them. On the other hand, uh, contextualization is one of those buzzwords that needs a little bit of clarification. Uh, what do you mean? by contextualization. Because there is, as I would suggest to us, and as we will see in the passage in front of us, there is a dark side of contextualization. Or we might call this a contextualization gone off the rails. Uh, could, could we uh, 
misuse this particular principle that we see in the passage in front of us. What we are saying is this. One cannot adopt the sinful practices of the surrounding culture in order to make or attempt to make the gospel more appealing. So we would say that uh, a good kind of contextualization is, um, you know, someone from this particular culture, uh, as the example in the beginning here, uh, you're in Central Asia, you don't leave the birthday party before the rice is served, because that will offend your guests. Okay, we'll just stay for the rice, okay? On the other hand, we don't become like the world in order to win the world. We, we, we don't say, well, I'm going to do everything that the culture around me is doing in order to win them over to Christ. And we could list uh, numerous examples where we see even the church here in America uh, citing gospel reasons says we have to act in this way so that we will win the world around us. Uh, we could name a number of issues. One that um, I, I, I uh, think I see the church in America struggling with is the issue of modesty. Many, many Christians, almost too many to count, look out at the world around them and say, you know, wow, look at all these unbelievers. If we're going to reach them, then we better adopt the same whatever dress that they have or whatever it might be. And based on that reason, citing, citing a gospel reason, we want to reach them, and so they will adopt uh, the way that the world acts in this area. And we could count multiple examples of this. The distinctive aspect of the passage in front of us, 1 Corinthians 9, is that while Paul admonishes us to practice proper contextualization, if you want to use that word, he likewise gives us a very, very pointed statement setting the boundaries for Christian contextualization. And we will, when we get to that verse, uh, draw our attention uh, to that particular point. In the meantime... Before we get there, understand that contextualization, or at least a biblical contextualization, is all about shedding unnecessary baggage that could hinder someone from accepting the gospel. It is not, however, about shedding the necessary components of the gospel and of the Word of God. We are called distinctly as Christians to not become like the world in order to win the world. And this is uh, 1 John 15, or I'm sorry, 2, 15 through 16, where we read this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a very strong statement. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Or we might say it this way, God does not need your sin in order to bring unbelievers to himself. Now that sounds pretty self-evident when we say it that way. And that really is what many are trying to do. I'm going to disobey God's word here so that this is not a distraction. And, and God doesn't need you, first of all. He certainly doesn't need your sin to bring other people to Christ. You don't need to 
uh, ignore the word of God in order to bring people to Christ. And of course, on the other hand, there may be some non-moral matters in your life that you can relinquish for the sake of the gospel. And that really is what the passage in front of us is about. Let's read it, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 15, and we're going to go through verse 23. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I may win those outside of the law. To the weak, I've become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for what? The sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Let's jump right into the passage in front of us. We begin this text with a restatement of what we saw in last week's passage in verse 15, where Paul says, I have rights, but I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to access them. I'm not going to demand my rights. He says, I've made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure a provision. His rights are what we saw in the passage last week. And if you remember that, he specifically listed two of his rights. He had the right to earn a living from preaching the gospel, and he had a, a right to get married, and he chose to give up those rights because he thought that it would provide greater opportunities to share the gospel without taking advantage of those rights. And then he follows this up with a statement where he says, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, Paul is saying, by the way, I'm also not engaging in reverse psychology here, okay? He's saying, I'm not saying, oh, I give up my rights. I, I, I don't need to get paid so that they say, oh, maybe we should pay him, and then he gets paid. He's saying, I'm not writing this so I can secure those rights. He says, I would actually rather die then get paid for preaching the gospel. This is how strongly Paul is convicted of this, uh, of, of giving up his right in this area. He doesn't want to be deprived of his ability to boast. You see that in the last part of this verse 15? He says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Is this perplexing to any of us? Wait a second. Hold on. Aren't we supposed to not boast as Christians? Why is Paul saying, I would rather die than give up an opportunity to boast about this? 1 Corinthians, in this very same book, 
in chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, we read this. Paul says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. So what? So no one can boast in the presence of God. So in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God picked the weak ones so that no one would be able to boast before God. And now Paul says, I would rather die than give up my opportunity to boast about this. So which one is it? What is, what is he saying here? Why is he saying in one context, no boasting, and in the other context, boasting? And the answer to this, we can go to a number of passages, but I think perhaps one of the clearest texts to help us understand what's going on here is a text that many of us know. In fact, many of us, rightly so, run to this text when we find ourselves in a situation where we're going through trials, we're going through difficulties. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, and it looks like I have 1 Corinthians up here, so ignore that. But 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What is he saying in 2 Corinthians 12? He's saying, I'm going to boast in my what? In my weaknesses. Christian boasting, then, is not only permitted, it is demanded of us. What's the context of that boasting? Paul is boasting in his weakness. He's, he's, he's actually boasting in God because he's saying, look at, look at how God is working through my weaknesses. This is all of God. This is not ultimately of me. So Paul has no ground to boast before God. He has no ground to say, look what I've accomplished. His boasting is, look what God has accomplished through my weaknesses. Look at what God has accomplished through a nobody like me. And in that sense, boasting is what we all ought to do. Look at God's grace in me. The object of the boasting is what matters. And so what is Paul doing in our text in 1 Corinthians? Well, Paul is kind of bucking the system. He's living a life that's very different. God is working through that, and Paul is boasting in God's power displayed through his weakness. I'll, I'll boast about not getting a paycheck all day long because look at what God's doing through this. So obviously it's not me. Obviously, it's God. And that's the content of Paul's boasting. Paul preaches without pay, and God produces fruit, and then Paul boasts because of that. Now, just to get this clear here, that the content of the boasting is what's essential, is he goes in the very next verse and say, here's what I can't boast in. Here's what I am going to boast in, my weakness. God's power, God's working, which evidences God's glory and God's supremacy. And oh, by the way, here's what I cannot boast in. Verse 16, he says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Why can't Paul boast in this? He can boast in that, but he can't boast in this. 
Um, he cannot boast in his answering the call to preach because he is compelled to preach. He says, necessity is laid on me. I have to do this. I have no choice. This, this wasn't, I didn't make the gospel up, and so I can boast about, look at this message that I have for you. He, he, he didn't tweak the gospel and make it more palatable to the world, and so now he says, look, everyone loves this message and, and boast in me. He can't boast in it because it's God's assignment to him. He's just doing what God's called him to do. Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. Paul is, is, is really borrowing directly from Jeremiah here, where Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding in, and I cannot. Jeremiah says, Preaching the word of God... If, if I finally get tired of all the opposition I'm facing, and I say, I'm done, I'm not preaching anymore, I, I, I'm, I'm sick of all this, and he says, I stop preaching, it's like this fire in his bones, I cannot help, I have to do this again, I have to preach, and Paul is doing the same thing, I have to preach, I'm compelled to preach, and so I can't boast in that because God is doing the compelling. God is doing the drawing. God is doing the work. And so I have to do this. Not only, not only then is Paul unable to boast, he's also unable to receive a reward for this. He says, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. Now, now Paul is doing this. He, he, again, he's saying he's compelled to do this. He's saying, I'm not the one who picked this message. I'm not the one who picked this calling. God picked the message. God picked the calling. I'm not doing this uh, of my own initiative. So therefore, I don't get a reward for this particular thing. Remember that Paul is compelled to preach. He must do this. He He doesn't do this of his own autonomous will. He does this because of a stewardship that is entrusted in him entrusted to him. And Luke 17 is a great passage to connect to this verse, and that is, you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Oh, I've fed the poor. I've helped the, the homeless. I've shared the gospel. I, I've washed feet. I've ministered to To all these people, look at how great I am. No, you just did what God called you to do. None of us get to share glory with God. God is God, not you. God is God, not me. And so we don't have the option to say, look at me, look at all that I have done. We, we, we can only say, we just did what he called us to do. We, we are unworthy servants. Let's praise and magnify him, not us. This, this is why the hymns that we sing are not singing about how great we are. We're singing about how great God is. This is worship of God, not us. And this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I don't get a reward for this. I, I, don't, I don't get to boast about this. I've been called to do this. I was compelled to do this. God, this is God's initiative. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. And let's funnel all of the worship to God. 
What then is his reward? He does say there is a reward. There's no reward. He says, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Um, this is kind of odd. This is challenging because there's a few different uh, debates on exactly what this means. Paul says, what is my reward? And, and you, you might think that he would say, this is, it's my inheritance in, in heaven, it's the, the joy that I, or whatever, but he, he says, my reward is in preaching the gospel free of charge. So he's almost saying, my reward is that I don't get a reward, I, I just, that I just get to do what God's called me to do, almost. Um, Paul views his ministry methodology itself as the reward. I, I'm preaching the gospel for free of charge, and that's all I need for a reward. It's, it's, and, and you really see some Pauline humility right here, that he just simply is saying, I'm, I'm doing what God has called me to do. So these first few verses, the first half of this section that we're looking at today, can be summarized like this. Paul gives up his Christian rights so that he can boast in what? His weakness. His reward comes not from preaching the gospel, since he's compelled to do that, but from his commitment to work for free. Let me say that one more time. This first few verses here is this. Paul gives up his Christian rights so that he can boast in his weakness. I gave it all up, and God's still bringing fruit. So it must not be me. It must be God. His reward comes not from preaching the gospel, since he's compelled to, but to his commitment to work for free. What then does this ministry philosophy look like in practice? What does it look like in practice? What does it look like boots on the ground? What does it look like, to to borrow from what we were talking about at 9 a.m., what does it look like to have a family from another culture come into our community and minister to them with this ministry methodology in mind? How are we, we might ask it this way, how are we going to minister to Afghan refugees? How are we going to do that? Well, things get very practical very quick in verses 19 through 23. And Paul says, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. So, so Paul would come into, if he was living today, he would come into this church and he would say, I am your servant. I'm, I'm here to serve all of you. I'm not here to demand my rights over you. I'm here to serve you. That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things, all people, so that I might, uh, all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You realize that verses 19 through 23 is a serious, major lifestyle commitment for the Christian. 
<laughs> you realize what it means to actually live this out? It, it's, it's to change your life significantly. To be thinking in terms of gospel priority. My, my life has to, has to preach the, the gospel. Everything I do has to be centered around the gospel. This is what we might call Christian liberty at its finest. A parallel passage to this, one that you may want to write in the margin next to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, is Galatians 5.13, where we read, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Don't you? Yes, you're free in Christ. Use it for, for the sake of others to bring them to Christ. Give up of your rights for the sake of Christ. So what, what does this look like? I'm going to, we, we went through, a couple years ago, we went through the book Conscience. And um, if, if you were not here for that study, by the way, uh, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that book and read through it. I'm, I'm going to give to you a couple of quotes, a couple lengthier quotes maybe, from the book Conscience. Um, but it's just really relevant to what's going on in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. How are we using our Christian liberty? And how are we avoiding abusing it? Because Christian liberty can be abused. So here's, um, here's the first section uh, that, we'll, that we'll look at, the first quote here. Christian liberty isn't cool. I finally get to do all the stuff I've wanted to do, but my strict upbringing wouldn't let me. Then you Facebook about it so everyone knows you're hip. That's not Christian liberty. That's immaturity. Christian liberty is the domain of the mature, not the immature. When the immature get a hold of it, they make a mess of it, like some of the Corinthians did. Christian liberty is not to just flaunt everything around. Christian liberty is for the domain of the mature, to use it wisely, to know when I can have this freedom and when I should restrain for the sake of the gospel. They define Christian liberty this way. Christian liberty is the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So they gave a list, and I'm going to give you the list that they gave in the book, okay? Christian liberty is the freedom to eat dog when natives in the village serve it to you. Christian liberty is the freedom to choose never again to eat southern barbecue and double bacon cheeseburgers because you're called to serve Christ in the Muslim areas of Detroit. I'm going to give this up for the sake of the gospel. Christian liberty is the freedom that comes to a single lady missionary who was brought up to have personal scruples against wearing pants, but who disciplines herself to wear the indigenous clothing of a tribe in Central Asia, including pants, because in that culture, only loose women wear dresses and show their ankles and calves. Okay? Hitting into some areas here that can be challenging. Christian liberty is the freedom that allows a very private person to open up her home in a society where people just walk in without knocking, a society that doesn't even have a word for privacy. Okay, this one might hit home with the uh, refugee situation we talked about this morning, right? Because they are not as private as we are, right? We all like our privacy, and they are not that. 
And so what does it look like to open up your home to one of these individuals? Um, or even as the example you gave this morning of, they're not really concerned about having a bedroom for everyone. They all sleep in the same room together. You know, how, do, how do we uh, work in that kind of a cultural context? Um, Christian liberty is about a clean freak who restrains himself from getting out his hand sanitizer every time he shakes someone's hand or touches something in a third world country. And then they say, we heard of a missionary couple who ruined their ministry because of fastidiousness that had wormed its way into their conscience. Then consider this additional statement. If your conscience tells you that it's wrong to eat animals, there goes your ministry to 90% of the people in the world. If you think privacy is next to godliness, you won't last long in most countries. Well, that's just mission stuff. I don't have to worry about those things. Two things. Number one, you don't know if God ever will call you to missions in the future. And this is your boot camp in preparation for that. Far better to prepare now than go from zero to 60 in just a few moments. Secondly, the mission field is here in the States. The mission field is here in Wayne County. Okay? Not everyone in Wayne County has an identical conscience. Okay? And so we have to have wisdom what can be given up because it's just a cultural thing and what can't be given up. Um, could you use your Christian freedom to eat a vegan or vegetarian meal so that someone will sit down with you and listen to you preach the gospel? Could you give up your freedom to do that? Could you give up or, or could you use your Christian freedom to do things that you don't like in order to reach others? Could you take on hiking even though you hate it because your neighbor loves to do that and you get to share the gospel with them when you're out there? We're going to look at in a few weeks uh, the head covering chapter, okay? We live in probably the head covering capital of the world right here in Wayne and Holmes County. Could you, ladies, if you find yourself in a context, put a head covering on to minister to someone in a context because it will help give you a gospel opportunity? Could you do that? What are ways in which you can take your Christian freedom and use them and use it to minister the gospel to others? We read here that Paul, even though he is free from all, he becomes a slave to all in order to win them. He's not demanding his rights. He says to the Jews, I'm going to become like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm going to be a Gentile. To the weak, I'm going to be like the weak. Perhaps Paul's strategy to be flexible is seen most clearly in his uh, strategy when facing the whip or facing a beating. Do you realize that Paul was willing to face a beating if it meant gospel opportunities would come of it? Acts 16, Philippian jailer. Paul let the authorities whip him and beat him. It was only after the beating, on the next day, that he said, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, in case you didn't know. And then he's got them in a little bit of a situation right now. Paul's got a little bit of leverage. 
Paul has opportunities now because he didn't say, no, 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 I'm a Roman citizen, don't do this. He let them beat, beat him, and then he says, I'm a Roman citizen. But in Acts 22, he announced his citizenship up front and avoided the beating altogether. Strategy was his motivating factor here. Paul demanded his rights as a Roman citizen when he could, but he relinquished them when it would serve the gospel better. He was, he was willing... So, 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 the, so you read Acts 16, and, and, and the application is not, let's just all go get beat up for the gospel. I don't want to get beat up, okay? <laughs> I'm guessing that most of you don't want to get beat up, okay? The, the application of Christian freedom is not, let me go live my most miserable life I possibly can, Okay? The application, look at the bigger picture of what Paul is doing. It's it's gospel strategy. In Acts 22, he's like, I don't see any reason why I have to get beat up here, so I'm going to tell you now that I'm a Roman citizen, and just, I'm not wanting to do that. In Acts 16, this might serve, I might have an opportunity here because of this. And and the flipping jailer gets saved. And so he says, I'm, I'm going to take the beating here. Um... So, so the call is not um, you're closer to God if you're more miserable, okay? Um, but we should be willing to accept that if it's God's call for us and it serves the gospel in this context. Flexibility here is Paul's strategy. Now, there is one caveat here. Um, we always like to look at the caveats, and um, there is one given to us right here in verse 21. And so let's zoom in on verse 21, because Paul is putting uh, some boundaries around this. And he simply says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now look specifically in the parentheses here. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What, what, is, what is he saying here? To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, parentheses, now, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here's what he confesses. Paul says that in his evangelistic efforts, he never goes outside of God's law. What does this mean? This means that he does not become lawless in his efforts to win pagans to the gospel. Okay? He's being very clear on that here. In other words, his flexibility extends only to cultural distinctions, not moral ones. This is crucial to understand this passage in front of us. Paul's flexibility in becoming all things to all men so that I might save some extends to cultural distinctions, not moral distinctions. He does not become an antinomian or lawless for the sake of the gospel. He does not embrace situational ethics for the sake of the gospel. You will notice that nowhere in the Bible does Paul say, to the murderer I have become as a murderer, to the blasphemer I have become as a blasphemer, to the immodest I've become as an immodest, to the adulterer I've become as an adulterer. He doesn't say this anywhere. One commentator elaborates on this. 
and says this, Paul is flexible, but he is not infinitely elastic. He does not think that fundamental and distinctive Christian demands are negotiable depending on the circumstances. He did not eat idle food in order to become as one without the law to those without the law. He did not tone down his assault on idolatry to avoid offending idolaters or to curry favor with them. His accommodation had nothing to do with watering down the gospel message, soft-peddling its ethical demands, or compromising its absolute monotheism. Paul never modified the message of Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to Greeks. Do you understand this scene, this whole passage in context? Someone might, might say, might take one verse out of this passage and say, I've become all things to all people. That means whatever it takes. Let me soft pedal the gospel message. Let me remove the ethical commands in scripture. Let, let, let me become as a sinner to reach sinners. No. You got to take the whole text in its context and understand the whole, the whole thing, what Paul is saying here. What is it that he's willing to give up? What is it that we should not be willing to give up? We must, as Paul says, become all things to all people so that we might save some, and we must do this within the boundaries of God's word. So how do we apply this, and where do we go from here? Well, um, we're going to get to, I think, somewhat of a pointed application here, and I'm just going to have one today um, that I think sums up all of this. But... uh, I'd like to draw our attention to the way in which our culture needs exhortation from this passage. This, This passage upholds we need to be flexible for the sake of the gospel, and it also upholds that doesn't mean infinitely flexible in just doing whatever. You see how that text is giving us both of these aspects? There are really two ditches that this passage warns us against. On the one hand, it warns us against the ditch of clinging to our rights and our conscience scruples so that we cause an offense and lose gospel opportunities. I, I, don't, I don't care. I'm going to eat the meat. It doesn't matter. No. We can let go of our rights in those areas for the sake of the gospel. On the other hand, and this is crucial... This passage warns us against confusing our rights with our duties. Don't mix those up. Those need to be distinguished from one another. You have the right to eat meat, but you don't have the duty to eat meat. You must eat it. That's why you can give it up. Because it's, it's not my, my duty. I'm not sinning if I let go of this. But you do have a duty before God to dress modestly, to use speech and language that edifies, to avoid the sin of blasphemy, and go on and on and on and on and on. These are our Christian duties, and they cannot be relinquished, even in the name of gospel proclamation. The key, then is knowing the ways in which we can be flexible and knowing the ways in which we cannot. And it takes a whole Bible for that. That's why we have Bible studies here from time to time. And what does the Bible say about this? 
those with more conscience scruples, those who have a lot of conscience, conscience scruples, are going to have the tendency to say, oh, there's very few ways that we can be flexible. Those with little conscience scruples, with, with less conscience scruples, are going to have a tendency to say, there's all sorts of ways in which we can be flexible. And the answer, of course, comes in knowing our Bibles enough to know what is sin is what is not sin. I'll give you just maybe kind of a little big example of this. Um, which, maybe we can ask it this way. Which, if we're going to apply this to us today, the, we, we need the full range of application. Which way is our culture... Which ditch is our culture more likely to fall off on? Just the surrounding culture. The, the surrounding culture, and I would say broad evangelicalism in general, I'm, I'm giving you something general, a broad brushstroke here, okay? In general, I think our culture is more likely to fall into the ditch of being flexible to the point of ignoring the Word of God. We, 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 would, we, are more, we are so concerned with not offending someone that we are willing to engage in sin ourselves so as not to offend. That's not universal. That's not all of us. That's the sin, the ditch, that I think in general. We would much rather be unsure, I'm not sure what the Bible means on this, but I'm willing to violate that so that I don't offend this person than, than the other way. So an example of this is I was talking with someone recently about the issue um, of social justice going on in our culture right now, um, and I had said, and this was before we did our, stu- our 9 a.m. study that, um, on, that, on this very topic, and I expressed my interest uh, in studying this out a little bit more and talking through this with the church. What is our culture saying about this? How is that differing from where Scripture is coming on this topic? And where do we go forward as Christians biblically? And I was having this conversation, and the advice that was given to me is, don't really worry about that. Just preach the gospel. Just preach the gospel. Okay. I uh, Okay. I think I understand what you're saying, but what are you saying? <laughs> what are you saying? Um the trend I want I want to I want to warn us. I'm going to go on record and warn us about a ditch to avoid, okay? Here's, what, here's, here's some of the things that I'm, I'm seeing in the culture on us. Let's preach what the Bible says on sexuality. No, just preach the gospel. Let's, 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 let's preach on, we're going we're gonna to preach on what the Bible says about modesty. No, 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 no. Just preach the gospel. Let's, let's preach on what the Bible says about entertainment. 
no, 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 no. Let's just preach the gospel. This is alarming, is, is it not? I, 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 understand, I understand the, the sentiment of, of where this is coming from. There, there is, there is a, the, the concern is coming from falling in the other ditch. The, the concern is coming from, we have created our own legalistic law and we have made so much that's not important as non-negotiables. And I say, yeah, we need to avoid that ditch. But the answer to that ditch is not closing our Bible on 99% of everything else that's in it. You understand? Well, here's what the Bible says about about uh, abortion. No, no, no. Just preach the gospel. Okay. Let's just close our Bible about abortion and ignore those passages. Here's what the Bible says in homosexuality. Let's close it and ignore what it says in that passage. It, you see how, you see the danger that, that comes with this? So, so in recognizing this ditch over here, don't go to this ditch over here, right? We want to avoid twin errors. This passage addresses both of those errors. This, this passage is comprehensive enough to say, don't go here and don't go here. The first error is claiming ground that isn't ours to claim. Okay? It's, it's like the, the Jews... And there are thousands of extra-biblical laws, right? It's not ground to claim. Those things are, are Christian liberty issues. You can, you can choose to have the TV or not to have the TV, okay? You, 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 but let's not add to and put a burden on people. So the first error is claiming ground that isn't ours to claim, we don't want to claim our everlasting right to eat the meat. On the other hand, we don't want to give up biblical ground in the name of tolerance. And so, may the Lord grant us discerning minds in the days and years ahead, because these issues are not becoming easier. Our culture is changing fast right now. We, we, we are not... There, there are, there's, sometimes you're, you're in a culture, and they stay the same for a very long time. Our, if there's one distinctive about our culture is there's nothing that ties our culture together right now. It is changing fast. And, and we are going to have to, if, if we have unnecessary conscience scruples, now is the time to work on getting rid of those. And if we don't have conscience scruples that we should have, we need to get to work on those. And the Bible gives us where to go for that. And so I have one point of application today, um, and that is this. I, wa- I wanted to, in this application, I wanted to encompass the whole scope of this passage. So, become all things to all people, and then in parentheses, without becoming antinomian or lawless. 
in order to save some, according to the passage in front of us. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I gave a couple of examples, and this is one of those issues where there are millions of examples. There are millions of, well, what about this? And all of you face those. You might face that at home or in work. Well, what about in this situation? What about in this situation? And again, I'm going to suggest to us that the application there is, number one, get to know your Bible better. And number two, there are other Christians here. Proverbs says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And so there's opportunities here for us to say, I don't want to be antinomian here, um, but, but I want to give up things that I can give up. And so is this one of those things, or am I going where I shouldn't go here? Notice in particular the last part of this application, in order to save some. Gospel priority. Our strategy is based on the gospel. Where, where do you live? Where do you work? Where do you play? Where do you go shopping? How are you conducting your life in such a way as to have opportunities to share the gospel with people? And so for us as believers, go out and share the gospel. And for those of you who might not know Christ, repent and believe. Come to know Christ as Savior. He is, uh, as we know, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for Christ. Help us to apply this text with wisdom. Help us to know um, what you've called us to do in these areas. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.